Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Excellent. Well, good to meet you, Dr. Taco. My name is Colton. I'm one of the PGY3s, uh, the PMNR program here at UT. Nice to meet you, Colton. Yeah. For having me. Yes, absolutely. So before we get going, um, I'll just have you kind of introduce yourself, uh, say like your specialty, where you practice at, um, and then what kind of got you into the field or what sparked your interest in medicinal cannabis and cannabinoids? Thank you. Yeah. So my name is Kimber Santanko. I'm a uh, board of palliative care uh, clinician here in uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center. So what got me into the field of medical cannabis? Actually, it started out to say uh, a survey study that I did with a colleague uh, who's in Arizona. And that was, 20, I think that study was like 2017 maybe or 2018. And, and so at that time, Arizona was a legalized uh, medical kind of a state and Texas was not yet at all, at least, yeah, not even for cancer. It was only uh, for epileptic conditions, refractory epileptic conditions. And so he, he was like talking to me about, oh yeah, we're having more patients now asking about medical cannabis because, you know, the state got legalized. And so we decided that just to do a study, it's like, hey, I let me just study your patient population and, and our patient population. So it's a legalized versus a non-legalized state. And let's see what the patient perception is uh, on cannabis. And so we did that. And it just kind of snowballed into more and more studies after after that. That's really interesting. Uh, do you, are we able to prescribe all medicinal cannabis and cannabinoids here in Texas? Um, actually, the proper term I, I would say would be certification. And, and I think that applies to all states uh, with um, licensed uh, medical cannabis programs. Uh, certification because uh, we don't really need to like, like a typical prescription, you know, you write the medication and, and you write the thing, you know, take whatever, take five MLs orally every, you know, whatever. In terms of the medical cannabis world, a lot of times all you need to do is let the patient have the condition that it's an inclusion criteria or qualifies for that state-based uh, medical cannabis program. If they do, you certify it, you, you kind of sign the certification. And they bring the certification to the dispensary, a uh, state dispensary, not just your random corner shop. And then the um, the cannabis pharmaceutical, or I think they're also called the bud tenders. Uh, then then uh, 
specifies the exact product and then dosing and the instructions uh, that they give to the patients. Wow. So the with the certification process, how long does it take to become certified? And then what does a potential recertification process look like? To be honest with you, I'm not sure how long it takes. It doesn't seem to be very complicated when I look at the uh, Texas Compassionate Use Program website at the very least. Um, I think you just have to submit like how we certify for anything, whatever is required. Um, what, one thing though, I know at least in Texas and the Compassionate Use Program, there's about, maybe it hasn't grown by now, but there's about like seven, 800 certified clinicians in the whole state. And there's about two, 3000 patients registered. So there's a dichotomy of, uh, or, or a spread at least of certifying, uh, individuals versus, uh, patients who are asking for it. Now, how much of that, uh, they got to me, you know, there's probably a few reasons why, why there's lower certifiers versus patients, you know, unknown, the unknown of cannabis still, lack of literature and all that. And then on the flip side, I, I would assume there's not only 3000 people using cannabis in Texas. It's a little bit more than that. Uh, <laughs> there, yeah, now you can get it off a, a lot of street and you know, you know your corner stores out there. Uh, some people, if they want that true medical product, they probably, but they want the higher percentage THC, they just probably get it from another state. Interesting. Um, you kind of mentioned uh, in that last little bit that the research is kind of questionable as it pertains to the efficacy of uh, medicinal cannabis for a variety of different symptoms, whether that's nausea, vomiting, weight gain, appetite. Um, is there a scenario that you would prescribe or that you do prescribe uh, medicinal cannabis for your patients? Yeah, I think there's uh, there's a couple of kind of scenarios to me. One is if they're already using it, they come in, they tell me they're already using it for a symptom, whether it's pain or, or neuropathic pain or nausea or, or appetite or something. And they actually say it works and that we've already tried different agents to help with that pain and those agents were not particularly that effective. I would, I, like I said in the talk a while ago, I armed them with information of what to expect, what to look out for, and all that. But I won't discontinue it. And just give them the knowledge so they can um, be aware and be cognizant if, if they are starting to have adverse events or drug interactions. Now, starting it, I don't, because I am not certified, I, I can't technically certify for cannabis-based product. But I do resort sometimes to the cannabinoids, like the marinol, uh, dronabinol, uh, as, as third or fourth line agents, particularly for like nausea and, and appetite if other things have have not worked out to help control that nausea, whether they have gone through all the citrons and Lanzapinal, paranol, raglan, combazine, antihistaminergic agents, promethazine, and all that, and 
we're still quite nauseous. Then, uh, you know, a few cases here and there, I'll, I might resort to like a dronabinol or something to see if if it's worked as a second line as needed agent or something like that, or even schedule it. We'll, we'll see. Uh, for those patients that are already using um, the medicinal cannabis or cannabinoids, um, it kind of seems like medical, like the cannabis and opioid use in terms of creating tolerance, increasing the dose to replicate that same level of pain suppression or symptom suppression in general seems to be kind of similar. How would you counsel a patient who's already on it who continues to increase? For instance, I know that with opioids, sometimes the strategy is to cycle them. Maybe you're getting a little bit tolerant of oxycodone, let's cycle to a different one. Maybe you'll be a little bit more sensitive there and kind of do that. Is there anything like that for the cannabinoids or cannabis? I, the personal experience, I think Dolan, but talking to colleagues or hearing other colleagues uh, uh, get presentations, um, one strategy that they, they do is titrating the ratio of CBD and THC. Um, because as you know, you generally know THC causes a lot of the psychotropic effects uh, that CBD doesn't. So one one thing way they do is titrating the ratio of CBD and THC, like maybe probably increasing the amount of CBD uh, and trying to go down on the THC part of things. Um, it, if they do feel that side effects are occurring more now or, or patients going higher and higher in the dose. Now there's still, I guess, in, in the grand scheme of things as compared to, let's say, like opioids, the the amount of years of experience of the amount of patients having to need go to, go to cannabis rotation or something is much still less um, as compared to to opioids, uh, also partly because we don't know sometimes how much the patients are using. They're also not very good historians in the terms of like, like how much did you inhale? Because <laughs> like, that's also very variable. Uh, you know, how much of that animal did you bite? That <laughs> it makes it a little hard as well uh, to, to kind of gauge the total amount. And I think most of them because it's such a, well, um, it is not new, but then this explosion and this interest, again, it's relatively new over just within the last 10 years, really. Uh, I think most clinicians still really don't ask about, you know, maybe they ask, do you use cannabis products? But they don't ask, like, how do you use it? How much do you use it? You know, what what is the reason you're using it? Which actually... Uh, um, it's one of the most important questions to ask them. It's not only are you using it, what are you using it for? Because uh, going back to your question again, that is important because let's say their original intent was to use it for pain. It's not working for pain, but they still keep using it and say, why are you still keep using it? I'll help you relax and I can uh, you know, relax at night. And that's where you can also start kind of saying, say, you know, yeah, it's like opiates. We don't want you to use them for sleep. We also, you know, not 
even natural, quote unquote, natural products have its own potential toxicity. So we might have to re look at how you're using it and why, and, and maybe start reducing the dose. So that may be a point of access for you to try to titrate them down. I think that's a great point too. One of the key, key outcome measures and really what determines our decision-making is what are the goals of the patient? Uh, and that's a track that you make to ask why, why are they using it? Why is, is what they're using for helping? Is it hurting? Is it not doing anything at all? Are there other side effects that they're using for? Or, or that's happening because they're using it. So I think that's a really great point. And also the kind of going back to the comparison with opioids, I feel like there's a very strong, strong feeling, maybe amongst providers, maybe just people in general that opioids are either all bad or they're good and medicinal cannabis all bad or good. There's some people are just so averse. Nope, not going to do it. Not even going to look into it. Just kind of shit. <laughs> yeah, there, there. I think there, there is that potential. Uh, you may want to call it bias or you know, experience or something. Yeah, especially with the opioid epidemic, there's a lot of that. Not just opioid phobia with patients, but opioid phobia with providers um, about using opioids, and and so, and yeah, some disclosures may be more open. To patients using cannabis uh, rather than opioids as a form of adjuvant or replacement um, uh, for opioids. So, so yeah, there, there definitely is a potential for that um, bias as well. Well, kind of speaking on a little bit of the risks of using medicinal cannabis or cannabinoids for patients. In your presentation, there are a lot of different side effects uh, from using, especially as the either the CBD or the THC side wow, raises. One of the side effects that you mentioned, not really a direct side effect, but an indirect side effect, was a potential increased risk of having a motor vehicle accident um, if somebody is driving under the influence. The question that I have is, as a provider, as a prescribing provider, is there a risk involved in prescribing medicinal cannabis or cannabinoids if somebody does have a motor vehicle accident due to driving under the influence? How does that impact the provider? Yeah, that that is a, a very good point because DUI it's not only alcohol, it's any, any substance that you're driving under the influence of. Um, and so I think you look at it the same as any sedating medicine as well, whether it's opioids or benzos or, or, or something, is you have to give them the same education. Do not operate having machinery. Do not try, do, you, know, you know, especially if they're fall risks. <laughs> The PMNR, especially if they're fall risk, you you really would want to warn and caution them about this. Not, not only as a solo agent, but let's say they're taking that they're still on some opioids, they're on some even nausea medicine that can potentially cause sedation. Uh, 
you kind of really have to have to caution the patients about it. Like, if they're really going to use it, if they really find benefit for it, perhaps stay at home or use it at night or something. Do not leave the house in the next hour or two or something. Especially, do not drive. Uh, you know, don't don't go, don't drop a few tinctures or or inhale a little and then go out and and, and drive. I think it's the same thing as it's not widely used, but you know, things like rapid-acting fentanyl products, those uh, lozenges, uh, same thing, those kick in within like 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, and, and they kick in fast. So you don't, you also say, you, don't, you caution them, hey, when you're going to take this, just you know, don't go out of the car right away or don't be driving with that lollipop in your mouth. Um, same, same mornings. That's good. Thank you for sharing that. Um, one of the other questions that I have for you is, given that the clinical research efficacy or the benefit of cannabis is questionable at best, but the anecdotal evidence may be a little bit stronger, how would you, and I know you kind of mentioned this in your presentation, but how would you counsel a patient who comes to you and wants to use it, given those two seemingly opposing stories, I guess? Yeah. And actually, sometimes I actually say that word forward. Like, you know, the literature doesn't show too much evidence. I know you're, you may know people that swear by it, that it works, or you yourself may have tried it before and it didn't help with your neuropathic pain or appetite or something. And and, and so I, I I give them really that their you know, their own space or room for their decision making to to whether they want to try that product out or not. But at least when they're gonna try it, it is an informed decision that they they know the potential uses they know the potential side effects and if there's potential drug interactions they know the potential drug interactions especially if it's a very important medication whether it's a cancer treatment or it's an an opioid or something that uh is going to potential increased toxicities to them um and a lot of times when it does have drug interaction potential with cancer treatments are gonna stop it. <laughs> so get, yeah, it's like I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna, you know, use this product and my my uh, clinical trial stop working on me. <laughs> so, so a lot of times that's like a trigger for them to stop it or not even try. They like, oh the very reaction is really like that's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and and they stop. Yeah, uh, speaking of clinical trials, I know MD Anderson is one of the leaders in research and development for cancer treatment. Is there anything going on at MD Anderson in the realm of cannabis or cannabinoids? I don't, I don't believe there is in terms of trials. Um, I know there's probably like survey studies and things like that, uh, retrospective studies, maybe on the perspective kind of type like yet. Yeah rates and all that like randomized controlled trials regarding cannabis products i don't believe there is um me and a few colleagues who have kind of worked with this other 
cannabis pharmaceutical group are actually still communicating with them, although we're not an active any studies or contracts or anything with them, but because they're also applying for a license uh, in Texas as a official state dispensary. So we're just kind of uh, monitoring the situation because that may be a potential study if they're state license so we can at least use a, a standardized you know product made by the same group and that's able to provide us the product as well maybe one of the final questions that i have for you um this is more of just a general question you may not have anything at the time but I figured I'd I'd ask, uh, do you have any advice in general? Maybe it's about the specific topic of uh, medicinal cannabis and cannabinoids or just in general, any advice for aspiring physicians, physicians in training or physicians in general as we take care of patients who may be in pain, maybe suffering do you have any advice? I think that probably my biggest advice, whether you can translate this for cannabis products or any other stuff, any other level of care or plan of care, it's, and the biggest thing is listening to the patient, really. Um, you know, sometimes we you know, go in there, especially like, say, a trainee sort of like pressure, oh, I need to take this history and go take all these details. And these are all my goals that I need to extract from the patient. And sometimes that doesn't happen. I can go in there, your script gets thrown out of the way because there's a curveball or there's there's a fork on the road that you have to just modify what your original intent of, of going into that room is. And and so just listening to the patient and seeing what their biggest need at that point is. Um and, and going from there and and one thing I always tell our trainees is like, yes, I know you kind of want to know about the medical part and we emphasize the psychosocial part. You want to talk to them about their psychosocial history and, and all of these things, but you don't have to do it all in one visit. Like you don't have to solve all the symptoms in one visit. Focus on the few that are the most important. Help with that. Establish the trust. And then from there, you can access more of the other symptoms or even their, their psychosocial because now they trust you. And, 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 and so they know that you're actually caring. You're not the scripted physician that's all there for an agenda and, and, and that's it. That's really good. I, I think that there, there's a quote that I read recently that said something along the lines of, if you let the patient talk to you long enough, they're going to give you the answer. Exactly. I think that's good too, you know, especially as I'm in training, well, I'm learning I'm an inpatient service how to take care of 15, 16 patients that are, that have, each have their own complications or their own problems that they want addressed. Feeling like there may not be enough time that just the act of listening a little bit more could be maybe longer in the moment, but shorter for us and finding the appropriate. Excellent. Well, that's all I have for today. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us? 
Um, but thanks for thanks for having me. It's a, a great first podcast experience. <laughs> it's wonderful. We're so glad that uh, you agreed to to talk with us even after the the grand rounds. Um, so we're very very grateful that you were here with us this morning uh, to give a wonderful presentation on all the medicinal cannabis and cannabinoids in supportive care, and then just kind of talk to us from your perspective and give your advice. So we're very grateful for this one. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I hope you have a great day, Dr. You too. Take care, Colton. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.